is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, Serena Williams tells Vogue magazine she's evolving away from tennis after this year's U.S. Open. We'll take a closer look at the career and the life and the future for Serena Williams. We'll also look into what's next for former President Trump following an unprecedented FBI search of his Mar-a-Lago estate and past school shutdowns due to COVID could make the transition from high school to college tougher than usual for incoming freshmen. Farms in central and northern California have another problem to worry about because of the drought. It's salty water. If you're a night owl, New Paper explains why you should get to bed before the clock strikes midnight. And um, sounds like a horror movie premise, but spider corpse robots are real. We will tell you what they're doing. But what happens if you stay up past midnight? You, you turn into a pumpkin. Pumpkin, is that yeah. what happens? Mm-hmm. Or, so Scientifically proven. <laughs> okay. We start, though, with upcoming uh, retirement of tennis star Serena Williams. With us is Rick Macy, longtime Hall of Fame tennis coach who coached Serena and her sister Venus when they were younger. And Doug Smith is with us, award-winning tennis writer and author of Whirlwind, The Godfather of Black Tennis, which is a biography of Dr. Robert Walter Johnson. Both of you, thank you for being with us. Rick, let's start off with you. Uh, Are you at all surprised by her comments in Vogue? No, you know, listen, it's un- it's her terms. What an amazing career. You know, she has a lot of stuff going on. You know, she's a mother. Um, she's doing it her way. And, you know, she won her first Grand Slam uh, at the U.S. Open, and she's going to call it a day there. And I think it's going to be beyond epic. So as long as she's happy, um, this is what happens with athletes. And I'm glad she's doing it on her terms. And there's not an injury. And Uh, That's the most important thing. There's a lot of lines that stick out in the piece. Um, One of them is, you know, she kind of had to make this decision a few times for herself. She was saying, you know, it was like a taboo topic, even in her own head. She said it would come up. I would start to cry. How hard do you think it was for her to realize and, you know, tell herself that, you know what? I don't want to, but it's time. No, it's it's listen, especially when you're going to go down as the greatest female tennis player ever to hold a racket. Serena's wired different. You know, when you're at the when you're at the mountaintop and you're going to go down as the goat, you got to understand you're one of the most brutal, intense competitors ever. And she loves the stage, she loves the competition, she loves the crowd. She's a performer, uh, just like Jordan and all these others that are the best of the best. So this was very, very difficult. But at the end of the day, you know, she's doing what she feels in her heart, and I'm I'm gl- I'm very happy for it. Doug, how would you describe her career in tennis? Uh, I would say it's probably (laughs) the only one that uh, you can really say. Uh, She was the best of her time. And even when you compare her to so many other generations, she she still stands above them. I still believe that if she had learned serving volleys, she might have won even more. Grand Slam titles, and I know that that's the only thing that you know really disturbs her now about not having the record. Um, Margaret Smith Court still has that record, but uh, it's uh, it's she played during a time when uh, you got by as a first round if you were seated, and it was not open tennis; it was uh, mainly amateurs during that era. 
Are there moments throughout her career that stick out to you today when you when you think about it or some of the things that she, you know, was dealing with off to the side or, you know, they happened in life. She had a C-section. She played through postpartum depression. I mean, she was playing through all of these things that she was dealing with. Well, yeah, the most uh, thing that I recall so well about her was when Venus reached the finals of the U.S. Open. And <laughs> she had to feel like this should be her. I watched Serena. She was on the sideline watching her sister, her big sister, do this. And it, it was clear to me that this is something she really wanted. So a couple of years later, she goes ahead and beats uh, Martina Hingis in the uh, 1999 U.S. Open, I believe it was. And, and after that, it was uh, Serena just about all the time. Rick, I'm curious if you were to to be teaching uh, a youngster now in in playing tennis, is there something from a Serena Williams that you could sort of take as an example that you would want to impart to somebody learning the game or at least trying to perfect the game? Well, first off, a great question. You know, listen, when I went out there in 1999, you know, at first I didn't see it. You know, I had, best vacation ever took who who would say it's Compton California but you know I didn't see it at first but there was a rage there was a burning rage not just in Serena but in Venus it's what I saw under the hood that they were bulletproof and this was baked in extra crispy from birth I'm just telling you and you know they needed an opportunity uh which I gave them and they just needed experience because when you have that already in there just a brutal, brutal competitor like women's tennis has never seen. They're, everybody's competitive. This was another level. I never seen two little kids, especially Serena, try so hard to get to a ball. She would almost fall down. And, you know, when you have that, when, when the fans are in the stands and it's showtime, that's priceless. And sure, I talk to the kids all about that. And I've had many others that had those qualities, but with, especially with Serena, she checked every box and she actually created a few more. <laughs> Rick Macy, longtime Hall of Fame tennis coach, uh, coach Serena and Venus and uh, Doug Smith, award-winning tennis writer. Right now, the FBI hasn't confirmed it directly, but people familiar with the situation say it, it's, it's search of former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate is connected to whether he took classified records from the White House. Mr. Trump described it as an unannounced raid. So what happens now? Robert McDonald is a former supervisory Secret Service agent and criminal justice professor at the University of New Haven. Robert, thanks for being with us. So uh, for the FBI to do something like that, to go in, as Mr. Trump put it, uh, unannounced uh, into his residence to take whatever it is they ended up taking, they would have had to, am I correct, convince a, a judge that there was the probability of some criminal action? Right. Uh, Michael Charles, great to be back with you again. Uh, I think if we look at what we're hearing today or coming out of the uh, various reports, over the past couple of months, there were some uh, discussions and negotiations over time between the National Archives, the FBI, and the Trump folks on some potential documents or boxes of documents that were taken. I think it's important to note that anytime there's a transition from one administration to another, there's really not a playbook 
uh, as to how that happens. And many, many times there have been instances of documents and things uh, getting to places that they probably shouldn't be. I hate to call it a violation. I think those are instances of issues. And I think uh, all of the uh, administrations have really had some type of documents that don't get to the right place at the right time. In this case, it looks like there were some discussions and negotiations that have been going on over the last couple of months. And in my opinion, there must have been some there must have been some type of breakdown in those discussions and those negotiations that led the FBI to go this route uh, with a search warrant on the former president's residence, which I know, again, is a protected facility by the Secret Service. So you've got a couple of different layers of different logistical problems there in the uh, serving of that search warrant. Yeah. And when you're doing something like this, where you're doing it and who's involved, the former president, this had to go, what, to the very highest levels with the Justice Department? I have to believe it did. Uh, look, it's, there's a very high standard for any search warrant to be signed by a judge, let alone that on the residence of a former president. So uh, my thought would be that this uh, has had to have gone to the highest levels uh, of the Justice Department, uh, director of the FBI, and obviously the attorney general for this to uh, uh, search warrant to be uh, affected and undertaken. But, I mean, talk about a sticky situation, right? I mean, because here you have the former president of the United States, as you just mentioned, guarded by Secret Service, right? Because he has that protection for life, I guess, right? Uh, yet the FBI is making an unannounced raid. They can't let Mr. Trump know, but I presume they had to let Secret Service know. Otherwise, they would have run the risk of Secret Service shooting them. Right. Normally in this situation, as I said before, you there in those negotiations, you would have contact with the folks from the FBI or the Justice Department reaching out to the Trump attorneys or the Trump Corporation and or the Secret Service in this instance to say, hey, you know, we're we're looking to uh, you know get these documents back to where they need to get to. Now that they move to the uh, choice to go the search warrant route, um, although I haven't confirmed it. Uh, it appears that the FBI, at least shortly before effecting that search warrant, did reach out to the Secret Service and did reach out to the Trump folks to say that this was going to be happening. You're absolutely right. We certainly don't want to, in this particular situation, see 20 FBI cars pulling into the parking lot at Miralago and, you know, having to uh, deal with a cadre of Secret Service agents who are protecting uh, the former president's residence. Now, he was not there at the time, is my understanding. Uh, whether Mrs. Uh, Trump was there or not, who knows? That cadre of agents would be protecting that residence, whether he and she were there or not. So, yeah, those logistics had to be talked about beforehand to make sure that it was a very safe uh, and effective uh, operation. Robert McDonald's former supervisory Secret Service agent and criminal justice professor, University of New Haven. And coming up, a new paper looks at why we all should be asleep by midnight and dead spiders are being turned into robots. But what will they think of next? We look into what they're being used for and and why, I suppose. Scientist mom says you have to go to bed. Right? Yeah, that's well, what the first story is. Yeah. Uh, right now, though, back to the FBI search sheds of the Mar-a-Lago estates, former President Trump's home. Unprecedented when it comes to presidents. Barbara Perry, director of presidential studies. University of Virginia's Miller Center, co-director of the Presidential Oral History Program. Barbara, thanks for being here. So, yeah, unprecedented. Um, take me to the moment that you heard about this yesterday and what went through your head. Watching the news, uh, as I want to do in the evening here on the East Coast, and uh, seeing that that was the news. And 
Uh, what went through my head was, interestingly enough, it was the very anniversary, August the 8th, and today the 9th of Richard Nixon's announcing on August the 8th, 1974, that he would resign the office of the presidency the next day at noon, and indeed he did. Uh, and so I have to say that coming of age at that time in Watergate, which helped me to get involved in this whole area of presidential studies, uh, I couldn't help but think of parallels. And, and the parallels that you were thinking of or what? Uh, a president, uh, and in this case, a former president uh, who is uh, or was engaged in illegal and or unconstitutional acts. Uh, and in this case, uh, a former president who is possibly uh, open to uh, a criminal charge being brought against him and a trial uh, being held in a criminal court against him. What do you think of the immediate split among the opinions as to whether this is some sort of banana republic or, you know, elites are under the same laws as the rest of us? That's what happens. Well, I believe in the latter, to be sure. And uh, we are not a banana republic until we have a president or an ex-president who thinks that he is above the law. If, if you had to sort of put this into perspective because on the one hand you know the fbi going into a resident with a court order and and picking some stuff up whatever it is they they picked up it isn't terribly dramatic on the on the the face of it but of course it's the fact that it happens to be where a former president of the united states currently lives in the whole history of this country and all the presidents that we've had since day one well since george washington anyway uh, how do you sort of put this in a certain context? Can you? Absolutely. And as, as you say, and as we're all saying, it is unprecedented to have the federal authorities led by the FBI uh, with a valid search warrant that is started in the process of, of prosecution in the Justice Department and with U.S. attorneys, but has to be approved by the what's called the third branch of government, that is a judge in the federal judiciary. Uh, so, yes, it's highly serious to arrive on the doorstep of an, an ex-president. Certainly is unprecedented. But then again, the presidency of Donald Trump was unprecedented. And in cases where we've had scandals, Nixon alone, uh, aside from the break-in at Watergate and the conspiracies and the hush money and the cover-up, which all brought down his administration, there was then a major fight over what he could do with his papers. He wanted to take all of his papers with him. And that's why we now have the, what's called the Presidential Records Act that was passed by Congress shortly after Nixon left office in 1974 to try to prevent presidents from taking official documents with them. So that's one point to put it into historical context. The other is that typically presidential scandals as in the Ulysses S. Grant administration uh, or in the Teapot Dome scandal uh, of Warren G. Harding, uh, these were uh, not the presidents themselves, but people in their cabinets or people in their cabinet departments uh, who had been bribed and they were engaged in financial graft and corruption. Uh, the president, to be sure, has to take responsibility of that, but he himself was not involved in the scandals. Uh, in the case of Donald Trump, if indeed what they collected yesterday is a violation either of the Presidential Records Act or a violation of laws prohibiting the release or the taking away of classified documents or the destruction of uh, official documents, then it's the papers themselves or the lack thereof that becomes the crime. And this president himself is implicated, not just somebody in his cabinet or an advisor. Barbara Perry, Director of Presidential Studies, University of Virginia's Miller Center. 
This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The colleges around here and the rest of the country starting to welcome freshmen to campus. Concerned, though, among education experts that this year's freshman class could struggle more than usual when it comes to the classroom. And it's all because of the COVID shutdowns and remote learning that took place the past couple of years while these freshmen were in high school. The experts say remote learning set many students back, especially black and Latino students. Elma Rodan is executive director of community of communities in schools, uh, Los Angeles. And Tyrone Howard is an education professor and director of the UCLA Pritzker Center for Strengthening Children and Families. Both of you, thanks for uh, being with us. Uh, Elmer, let's begin with you. Uh, during the whole pandemic, uh, when schools were, were having remote learning, there were various reports about whether students were getting what they needed. And sometimes we talked to experts who said they were, and often we talked to experts who said they weren't. Is it the case that, that it turns out that they just weren't getting what they needed? Hi, yes. I, I think the answer is that education was inconsistent, that some schools were ready to take on virtual learning and teachers were able to adapt uh, faster than in other schools where students didn't have computers at home, didn't have access to quality internet. And we know that uh, there are different types of learners. While some students uh, can sit in front of a computer and absorb information. There are many who are hands-on learners or need to be in front of an, an instructor. And it took the systems a really long time to figure out which student fell into what category. Um, the other thing that affected students was economic conditions. That so We saw that a lot of students were compelled to take on jobs to help their families uh, or were forced to leave school altogether to take on full-time work. Uh, to take on the financial burdens uh, of the home. So what are some of the things you worry about with this class in particular? Because you go to college and uh, you get past the early stuff where, where some of it is what you may have learned in high school, and then most of it is new after that. So would they be okay on that front? Well, I think that uh, colleges need to um, slow down a bit and not expect for things to go back to normal. Normal is not what these students understand anymore. Uh, you know, I think in addition to the learning, students are finding themselves uh, with more financial burdens where before the families may have had modest savings and would be able to contribute uh, to some of the costs or purchasing a laptop or things that the student would need once they set foot on campus, these kids, many of them are now finding that they uh, still have some type of financial responsibility to the family and the expectation is that they will contribute in some way. And so I think that it's more than the academic support that students need, the social emotional pressures that they are carrying, uh, the traumas that they are carrying from suffering um, you know, family losses or uh, housing or uh, or food insecurity, all of those things are at play. And so I think that um, students need individualized attention. I think colleges need to take the time to assess the needs that students are bringing with them, particularly students from marginalized communities uh, and low-income backgrounds, and do their best to meet those needs without expecting students to be 100 percent on the first day of school. Okay. Uh, Tyrone, uh, so Elmer is saying that colleges can't sort of presume that everything is normal, that they have to, 
make uh, concessions to the fact that many of the students entering in their freshman years uh, are not going to be up to par, not the way previous uh, students may have been. So what exactly are colleges supposed to do? And if you bend too far backwards, when do you cease really being a college and really just an extension of grade school? So I think Elmer is spot on about a number of the challenges that he outlined. And I think for colleges, it comes down to a couple of things. I think there's got to be flexibility, knowing that students are still trying to adapt and adjust to being back in school again and learning in ways that they hadn't been for the prior two years. I think patience is also important because you've got to be patient as students sort of develop that learning muscle, which is so vital to them being academically successful. And then empathy for all the issues that I think Elmer outlined as well. I think from a college standpoint, I think there's a there's a sort of a nice balancing act you have to do because I don't think that because you're showing patience or flexibility or empathy that that means you're lowering standards. I think it means that you're just trying to help to create the kind of learning environment that is essential for students to learn and thrive. And colleges have to be supportive of that. Instructors have to be mindful of that. I know in uh, the last year or so that I've seen some of my college students, I hear more of them struggling with issues around homelessness, financial challenges just socially, emotionally, as Elmer mentioned, not being there. So I think if we want students to thrive academically, we have to support them socially, emotionally, financially, and that way they'll begin to to sort of develop the the kind of skills that they need to be back on track. Tyrone Howard, education professor, director of the UCLA Pritzker Center for Strengthening Children and Families, and Elmer Roldan, executive director of Communities in Schools LA. California's farmland in the Central Valley now facing even more problems because of the drought. The Sacramento and San Joaquin rivers are becoming too salty to use for some farmers. Yeah, when it's dry, less rain and snow, so less water coming down the mountains into the delta. That means the salty water from the ocean can creep on in. John Herrick, General Counsel for the South Delta Water Agency. John, thanks for being here. So this seems uh, kind of awful, given how many people down here especially depend on the water from the delta and how many of those farmers depend on the water from those, uh, those waterways. Yes, it's a, thank you for having me. It's an extreme situation right now um, without starting out too badly here. If we have another year with very little rain, uh, we're talking catastrophe for large areas of the state. But right now, the, the situation is tolerable for many people, but it's going to get worse. And of course, the people that rely on exports from the Delta, I think this is their third year of zero allocations, and it's hard to farm south of us with no water. Uh, I was going to ask you uh, if you can sort of give us a picture of how this increasingly salty water is impacting farmers. Yes, the the, the Delft farmers uh, divert right from the channels. And so there are two separate problems. One of them is the incoming water. And on the San Joaquin River, because of upstream activities and some delivered water up there, the salt is uh, entering the river at a high concentration and then flows downstream. There's some dilution that goes on, but then it flows downstream to the Delta. And so the Delta farmers are diluting that concentrated salt. Now in years of drought, there's less flow, but that doesn't change the saltiness of it. So it depends on how much the dilution, the dilution in between occurs. But at the same time, then the, the rivers release water for things, purposes such as fish and Delta outflow. In other words, you want to keep a net outflow of the delta so that the ocean salt doesn't intrude. And the less water there is, the more um, salt slowly makes its way in on the two tides each day. And when you get to a certain point, um, the salt water starts affecting the growth of the plant and certainly the crop. So right now, 
the the obligations to maintain that uh, salt barrier from the ocean are being met for the most part, not completely, but being met for the most part. But um, we still have salt coming in. And, uh, you know, again, by the end of the year, this could be a catastrophe. Yeah, some of the farmers are already saying their their yields are, are way down because what they can't get, uh, they either can't get the water because of the drought or what they can get is, is too salty and that's going to start affecting your crops. What are some of the ways that so far we've tried to mitigate this? And then are there plans to try and do something or are we just going to meet that catastrophe that you've mentioned? Well, that's the key question. And I've, you know, I'm a, I'm a small player in this, but I've tried to ask the state and federal projects to model, run computer models to see when we might lose control of the Delta and losing control of the Delta means there's not enough water in the upstream reservoirs to make releases to repulse the salinity. And they haven't done that yet. I think they've done it, but I don't think they want to show that to the, to the world yet, just because it might be that bad. But the problem is you have to have enough water. So how do you do that? You either have to have more storage somewhere upstream to collect more water so you have more in dry times, or you have to reoperate the existing reservoirs so you save more water for following years rather than trying to export it when you can. Those two different alternatives are both very, very difficult to accomplish, and there's a lot of opposition to each of them. So if you if we're in a situation now, if climate change is real and these are effects of climate change, if you have to keep more water in the reservoir in order to meet future dry years, that means there's less export water because there's no new supply. And if there's less export water, then people who are getting zero or very little during dry times are going to stand up and say, well, that doesn't work for us. So the problem is the state of California is not doing a very good job at identifying and moving forward on projects to increase the pie. The supply is not increasing. It's being redistributed each year based on various fights, water rights, and emergency situations. So, so since, let me ask you this, because since, since we're in, what, a, a once in every 1,500-year, 20-year drought cycle, uh, you know, there's a fairly high probability that it's not going to improve uh, in any significant way in the next year or two. It might, but it might not or probably won't. So what happens then? You earlier were talking about how catastrophic it would be. Give us a sense of what that actually means. Well, my, my clients are in the Delta, which is you know right there with the Sacramento and San Joaquin Rivers meet. Uh, south of me, so south of the city of Tracy, south of the cities of uh, Stockton, there are large areas of state and federal project uh, service areas, and they mostly are farmers. And their demand is 5 million acre feet a year. 5 million acre feet. So most of those people have received zero water for three years, zero water allocation. There are other supplies. They've, you know, tried to make men's ends meet. They've, they've done some pumping. They've done exchanges. They've done purchases. So they're getting, they're getting by. But in my view, again, this is, I hope, don't mean to sound too bad, but in my view, if it doesn't rain next year, then the magnitude of bankrupt farmers in the South Valley is going to be catastrophic. And I can't put any number on that, but at some point you simply can't scrape by anymore if you don't have water and you've got, you know, thousand acres, you got to irrigate. It doesn't work. So the other part of that is if they, if there isn't any rain next year, at some point, the reservoirs could reach Deadpool and Deadpool means the water's so low, we can't release it. Now, I don't want to overstate that, but so when you get down to somewhere 10 or 20% full and you can't release any water, then you don't have any rivers, you don't have any fish. 
and there's no water flowing into the delta. And so the ocean slowly moves into the delta. So all of the delta farmers might, you know, have their crops ruined or trees ruined and, and, and not have any, any income for that year. So the, that ignores the supply to urban areas that come from the delta. And that's substantial, especially the LA basin. Um, we're not the LA's only uh, supply source, but we're an important one. And so you, you know, you get too many years in a row and suddenly there's no water for, you know, most of the beneficial uses in the state of California. <laughs> All the stuff we use it for. Uh, John Herrick, General Counsel, South Delta Water Agency. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. There's a Clapton song after midnight about letting loose, having fun after midnight. But he and his friends, they should have been in bed. Well, you know, I, I'm thinking like when I was in school mm. in, 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 in New York City, I used to come alive after midnight. I, yeah, well, we were all younger once. I know, but <laughs> I, my, my day began at night. <laughs> Researchers, though, at Massachusetts General have come up with a hypothesis that the human brain isn't meant to be awake after midnight. And they say staying up past midnight can possibly lead to bad things. With us to explain is senior author of the paper, Dr. Elizabeth Clerman. She's an investigator in the Department of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Well, I, I, like I said, I used to stay up and begin pretty much my life after midnight, and uh, I guess I survived. What's the problem after midnight? So, first of all, thank you very much for our work. I want to say that there's nothing necessary... I don't want to tell people that they should never be awake after midnight. We're just put forth a hypothesis that the brain may be different after midnight, and people should consider that. Certainly people, as you noted, in their teenage years and in their young 20s tend to be awake late at night um, for many reasons. Their body clock tends to be later than older people. As you noticed, as you noted, you don't necessarily stay awake as late now as you did when you were younger. Um, and there may be other reasons why they're awake. There are, however, many things that happen at night, after midnight, in the middle of the night, that are not necessarily good. And this paper is a call for that to be investigated. What exactly is different? And is there any way that we can counter any potential negative effects? I'm certainly not saying you shouldn't be awake after midnight. All right, so We're permission... the brain is... We hypothesize that the brain is different after midnight. Permission yes. to go to bars. So you can stay yes. up till two if you want to. What are some of the things you think might be different about the brain? So we, there, we think the brain um, processes things differently after midnight. So, for example, does it process risk versus reward differently? If you're faced with a choice of A or B and one is riskier than another, are you able to assess that risk? Should I have another drink or not? Am I able to assess that? Um, your ability to plan, we think, is different after midnight. Your ability to stop doing something, to stop an impulse, we think is different after midnight. Your mood is, tends to be more negative than positive after midnight. So all of these are things that involve that um, that are involved as people make decisions about what to do. And there are some things that are bad that happen more in the middle of the night. There's more suicides in the middle of the night. There's more violent crime in the middle of the night. There's more use of addictive substances in the middle of the night. And so we 
um, as investigators, we don't necessarily want to be up in the middle of the night studying people and what's happening to their brain and their ability to assess risk or their ability to um, make a decision. But there are millions of people who need to be awake in the middle of the night making these decisions, whether it's a physician in the middle of the night taking care of patients or a police officer deciding whether the person they see on the street is doing something risky or not, or um, other security people. They have to be awake in the middle of the night, and we want to be able to support them. Do there you are think, also people uh, what, awake in the... Sorry, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious, because uh, do you think that some of this might be explained by... Uh, the fact that, that, you know, sort of baked into our DNA from, you know, ancient times, uh, you know, people were always afraid of the dark with good reason, because when the sun went down, all kinds of bad things happened. And so, the, you know, is it that the brain over many, many you know centuries just got conditioned to not function as well at night because it just wasn't safe to be awake at night? Mostly, but a slight twist. We are, you are correct, we are day-active species, unlike rodents or some other species that are night-active. And we, are, we have a clock in our brain that says, oh, it's day or oh, it's night. And at night, that clock in our brain says it's time to go to sleep. During sleep, many things happen that restore us um, in many different ways. And our brain wants us to be asleep. So you... One of the hypotheses is, and once again, it's a hypothesis, it's not proven, is that the brain therefore doesn't sort of pay as much attention to these things that you don't usually do when you're asleep. You don't usually have to choose about risky behaviors. You don't usually have to do long-term planning. Why should the brain spend all this in the middle of the night, be fully active for all of that if it's not usually expected to do that. You know, during the day, you might want your brain will say, okay, it's time to get up. Let's prepare for get up or we're going to eat a meal. Let's get the hormones ready for the meal. So one of the hypotheses is, is the brain is expecting us to be asleep, as you said, and therefore it's not sort of putting as much attention into these what are called higher order functions for making decisions. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Do what your brain wants you to be doing, maybe. <laughs> Dr. Elizabeth Clerman, Department of Virology, Massachusetts General. Thanks so much. See, I still stay awake after midnight. Now is when I sleep. Yeah, from from <laughs> 1 to 2.30. And then again from 8 to 9.30. When, Two when, naps a day. You know what would be uh, scary? What if some scientists took a bunch of dead spiders and turn them all into robots. Yes, an army of dead spider robots. Sounds scary, sounds like science fiction, but it's true, sort of. Researchers at Rice University using spider corpses as robots to grab things, to pick them up. We're with Faye Yap, mechanical engineer at Rice University, lead author of the study, and Dan Preston, professor of mechanical engineering at Rice Study, co-author. Uh, Faye, why have you made spider robots? Hi, thanks for having us. So this project started shortly after our lab was established. And while we were setting up our lab, we noticed the curled-up spider at the edge of a hallway. And at the time, we were curious as to why spiders curl their legs up. And our curiosity led us to an online search revealing that spiders actually do not have antagonistic muscle pairs. And instead, they only have flexor muscles to contract their legs inward. And they rely on hydraulic pressure to extend their legs outwards. And at the time, we were thinking that this is a really interesting mechanism. And we would like to leverage it for soft robotic applications. So, Dan, um, why not just 
create a mechanical device that can duplicate what a spider can, or is that just not possible? Yeah, definitely it would be possible uh, with today's technology to make these small-scale grippers. But the beauty of this work, we believe, really comes from its simplicity. So nature basically provides a biotic material, that's in this case the inanimate spider's body, that's capable of acting like this gripper. All we have to do is tap into its internal hydraulic system to use it as a gripper with no other fabrication steps required. So for people driving around trying to understand this, the, the spiders, and now they're dead, they die and then their little eight arms go inward. Those are kind of like little claw machines when we're getting a teddy bear out of the out of the thing, right? And you pay a quarter and you can never grab it. That's how they grab stuff. And you're finding a way to manipulate that once they're not even around anymore. Yeah, in essence, that's what's going on here. Faye, what would they use this for? I mean, obviously, it can pick up very heavy objects. What would they be picking up? Um, I guess because our necrobotic gripper has inherent compliance and also some camouflaging capabilities, we envision that we can deploy it for scientific field work, for example, to capture and collect small insects and also maybe other live specimens that are very delicate without damaging them. So what's the work that is now required to make that sort of thing happen? Um, I guess one thing that we could look at is to study the durability of our grippers. So currently in our work, we show that um, after about a thousand cycles, the spider, um, the necrobotic gripper starts to have some mechanical degradation. So one of the things that we're looking into in the future is to study how Different polymeric coatings can prolong the lifetime of our necrobotic gripper. So, Dan, does this work with any dead spider, or does it have to be a particular kind of spider? Go around and start poking them? Yeah, no, I mean, does it... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we, uh, so far in our work, only used wolf spiders that we obtained from a biological supply company in order to keep things well-controlled for this more sort of scientific inquiry into how this works, but we don't see any reason why this wouldn't work using any sort of spider as the source biotic material. Okay, so we would be replacing tiny mechanical grippers that we build ourselves to to build stuff, and we'd be using the spider legs instead, theoretically? Yeah, so certainly that is one of the options we see for this work in the future, at least in certain applications where the fragile handling uh, is important and the ability to really pick up incredibly heavy things is not that important. So I, I have a question because I, I can... You're not I, picking up concrete blocks with yeah, the spider legs. Right. No, no, no. <laughs> but but, but I, I could almost see some emails uh, before they were sent. Are, do the spiders... Uh, is the idea to use spiders that have already naturally died, or do the, do the spiders have to be killed in order to do this? So in our case, uh, we made sure to look at the literature in terms of best practices for how to ethically source and handle these spiders as materials. Uh, it's true that they don't all show up dead, but we're kind of following, again, best practices there. And really these biotic materials, in this case, the inanimate spider's body, we think of it sort of just like, uh, for example, other biotic materials like leather or even wood that people use in their day-to-day lives. See, I hate spiders. So if you want, if you want a steady stream of dead spiders, I'm more than happy to provide them. You can't crush them with your foot. The oh, legs it, won't work anymore. Oh, you're right about that. Okay. F- Faye, do you like spiders or do you like them more now? Um, 
I guess they are not, they used to not be one of my favorite creatures, but after learning more about them, I find them more interesting. Just know, learning about their hydraulic mechanism. I think they are really interesting creatures and people should take a closer look at them. Did you have anybody in the lab who like really hated doing this, but they thought it was cool work, so they stayed? Because I can just imagine, you know, you've got boxes of spiders showing up and there's probably one person in there going, oh no. <laughs> uh, most of my lab mates are pretty supportive of the work. Everyone, after, like, after seeing the work, thought it was also really interesting and a really cool idea. I mean, Dan, what about you? Do, do you feel the same? I mean, did you like spiders before or are you in my camp? I despise them. Well, I still really don't feel that great when a spider shows up around my house, but uh, showing up for work, you kind of flip a switch in your head and get ready to get down to business. So that's so, what it was this like. This is a me. work spider. Yeah, I was going to say. so. It's so, not a home spider. So long as, <laughs> so long as the spider is an employee, it's okay. <laughs> yes, a little tiny badge. <laughs> yeah. Here to help. Uh, Dan Preston, professor of mechanical engineering, Rice study, co-author, and Faye Yap, mechanical engineer at Rice and lead author of the study on wait, the robot spiders. Wait until HR hears about that. What? Employee spiders. Yeah, little tiny badges. As long as they scan that key card, I'll be fine. All right. Uh, more in-depth tomorrow, right? Yeah.